warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott here with me. And it's just the two of us, and we'll probably play that song eventually one day, mate. Hello, Stephen. Hello, mate. Yes, I'm uh, ready to go by Jingo. So, uh, <laughs> you know, this is uh, just the two of us flying, uh, flying not quite solo, but in Why tandem. Not quite solo, so. yeah, yeah. It seems weird. We've been mentioning this before when we recorded just the two of us, you know, it's... Not a very common occurrence at the moment. We have lots of wonderful guests and people helping out nowadays. But uh, I, I think we need to get back on track and just get some of the movies that you and I just want to talk about. I think. Yeah, we've been lucky to have uh, other people come in and, and, and dilute our nonsense. But yes, we'll, we'll have a few more with us, uh, just, the, just the pair of us. Um, it's difficult to not say one. just the two of us. Just it? the two of us. It is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't get the song in my if, head. If, if, the, if the song plays every time, then we'll, this will be a very long podcast. <laughs> Today, it's my choice. Now, cast your mind back through the mists of time, my friend, when this podcast first started. And this is the movie, or one of the movies, that I always envisioned would be the bread and butter of this podcast. It's one of the first things I thought of when we sort of said we're going to do a British movie podcast. It's got Kenneth Moore, it's stiff British upper lips, it's a war movie, it's a very famous British war movie, and it's taken us six plus years to get to it. For me, this is the movie or one of the types of movies that really sort of encapsulate what we were setting out to do at the beginning. Yeah, that, you know, it is painfully British and, mm. and is, you know, archetypal and obviously has had plenty of influence elsewhere. I mean, the, you know, uh, any parts of a film where they're covering the, the Battle of Britain has influence on Star Wars, obviously, and things yes. like that. So this is, a, it, it is very much that type of film, which is the, as we've described before, the, you know, Wet Bank Holiday Monday film. That uh, it's on television and you can't go out to play and you just come in and find your your father watching when you were a kid, you know that kind of thing. Exactly. So this is you know which is a a mainstay of of British um, film experience. Funny you mentioned sort of bank holiday or wet Sunday afternoons. I had memories of the very first time I watched this, and I don't even think I was a teenager. I might only have been about ten or eleven. It came on one Sunday, you know, after Sunday lunch, as as these movies always used to do on BBC One. And I sat down to watch this a couple of nights ago and I'm thinking, yeah, this is very comfortable. It's a very familiar film to me. And I got into about the first 15, 20 minutes and then I suddenly realised I hadn't seen past the first 15, 20 minutes 40 years ago. So it was, yeah, so it was almost a first time watch apart from that initial bit with the biplanes and all of that. Uh, I'll let you know my reaction in a second. I'm hoping there's a trailer out there in the wonderful world of the internet. Oh, I think there is, yeah. Is there? If there isn't, we'll have a juicy bit of dialogue or something from somewhere within the movie. We'll be back after this. 
This is a story of courage. The courage of a man's refusal to accept defeat when defeat seemed inevitable. It is a story we can tell with pride, for it spans the towering eventful years that we ourselves have known. And yet, it has no end, for courage has no end. From the beginning, success seemed immediate and assured for Douglas Bader with his tremendous energy and gay good humor. He had a buoyant zest for living. And for him, living meant flying. What sort of chap is he? What are his interests in life? Flying and sport. That's about all. I wonder how he's going to take it when he finds out that he's lost both legs. You saved my life. You know that, don't you? Nonsense. Oh, yes, you did. The others cut me up, but you put me together again. Well, let's say we fought the battle together. We won it, didn't we? Yes, we did. Dear Brace. But for Bada, this was only the first of many battles to be fought and won. Well, look at the rate I'm going. I'm not going to be much better off for years, so we might as well take a chance on it straight away. Well, that's the most romantic proposal a girl's ever received. Good, then that's settled. Now let's have another whack at that golf ball. His courage never failed him, but still the sky remained beyond his reach until the war gave him the chance to fly again. A chance he seized with such incomparable spirit. Report you. Squadron scramble! of true greatness, of a man who reached for the sky and became a legend in his own lifetime. Reach for the Sky, released in the UK 1956, directed by the great Lewis Gilbert and starring, of course, Kenneth Moore, Lyndon Brooke, Muriel Pavlov, Lee Patterson, Alexander Knox and Dorothy Allison, they're sort of the top build cast. But when we go into the Village Hall of Fame in a while, you're going to find some very familiar faces amongst all of those guys. The synopsis, I, I think people pretty much know this story, mate. RAF pilot Douglas Bader loses both legs after a terrible plane crash. Through determination and strength of character, he overcomes great obstacles to become a World War II flying hero. I'm going to add a little bit more to this. Based on Paul Brickhill's biography of Douglas Bader, Reach for the Sky is a celebration of one man's heroism. While many 50s war films highlighted the value of strong leadership, few concentrated so single-mindedly on the exploits of one man. In The Dan Busters and The Coldest Story, teamwork is essential to success. In Reach for the Sky, Bader's almost solitary actions save the day. I wanted to include that because I think that is literally what this story is about, isn't it, mate? It's one man overcoming 
terrible adversity and it's only through his sheer bloody mindedness that he becomes the man that we know the hero that we know yeah i mean this is heavily romanticized uh, in even in douglas Bedder's um own uh, assessment of it but it is about his tenacity i mean i think the the reality is that he wasn't actually really a hero um as such but um, certainly the tenacity of him to overcome that adversity is is absolutely a, a key human theme of this that is uplifting and inspiring, despite, as I say, what a repugnant individual he actually was and how the the film portraying him as it, as it does, as a different character to who he, he actually was in, in reality, is um, poetic license uh, at the very least. But certainly it, it does give you that, that sensation, uh, which, as you've said, is something that was sought by a, a lot of post-war films about the war, to mm. give that uplift to a to a country that was still trying to come to terms with what had happened and still get back on its feet, literally. Yeah, for uh, one of a better prices. Yeah. <laughs> you were saying to me just a minute ago before we, we came on air that this was heavily marketed for the American audience as well. You were saying they were really trying to make a push to make this a success over the over the Atlantic, and it, it did it fail? Was it wasn't as successful as they expected? Just, yeah, it just didn't didn't capture the, the mood. And obviously, we know that very, you know this was an era where British cinema was realising if they wanted to sell a film over in the states, they were having to put some kind of a, a, American person in it, even if it wasn't a star. They had to put somebody in it, and sometimes they'd shoehorn them in by pretending they were portraying a Canadian. Um, so it was close enough. It was, you know, that happened in a number of films. But no, it's, it's I don't, don't think it went over very well. And I think, you know, part of that is that they had enough war stories of their own to be telling, you know, especially when they tend to just make up uh, the narratives of, of, of war stories. You know, it's, I don't know why they do that. It's such an enigma to me. So, um. Oh, well played. <laughs> So it, it just didn't really capture the mood over there. And, and even though they sent Kenneth Moore over to do press junkets and all sorts of things, unfortunately, um, it didn't go anywhere. It did help establish Kenneth Moore as, as a star, really. I think it, it helped him and his career. But no, unfortunately, it didn't capture the Americans' attention as much as they wanted, sadly. This is the beginning of a great three-movie run for him. I just checked on IMDb. Uh, Reach of the Sky, 56. Admiral Crichton, 57. And 58 Nights to Remember. We've reviewed all three of those. Yeah. Um, and then you saying about him trying to make an impression in the States in 58, which was the same year as Night to Remember. There's that troublesome Western, shall we say. I'm trying to think of a correct adjective to describe this. The Sheriff of Fractured Jaw, which he did. Yeah with Jane Mansfield, I think it was. But then he finds his feet again, because straight after that, we go into the 39 Steps, Northwest Frontier, and sink the Bismarck. Um, this is a very sweet spot in, in Moore's career, this late 50s, just going into 1960. And wasn't this just preceded by Genevieve? And Genevieve was before, and I was just looking to find if there was anything else that we've either done or would be fairly outstanding. What was the Doctor movie, The Doctor in the House? Doctor in the House, yeah. Or, yeah, a couple of years before was Doctor in the House and Genevieve was 53 the year before. So, yeah, I mean, we weren't expecting Kenneth Moore to play such a major part in, in Real Britannia reviews, but 
when we get to the Hall of Fame, I think that, you know, we're on six or seven now, at least. And I don't think we've had a duff performance in any of them yet from Kenneth Moore, have we? No, we haven't. I mean, it, there is some criticism sometimes of, of Kenneth Moore that he does pretty much play the same person in every film. <laughs> he does. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, um just comes across as being likeable. And yeah. that, and, and an everyday hero where he's playing, such as in uh, Northwest Frontier, he's he's coming across as being an everyday hero. He's not some uh, figure that is, you know, out of the ordinary. He's he, you get the impression he's he's got that everyman quality, which I think again builds to his reputation quite well. So he's, you know, he, uh, that's I think why he ended up being beloved as a star. The film I read somewhere received a lot of criticism for focusing too much on the Douglas Bader character, right? Which obviously is difficult because it's a, it's a it's a biography of a man, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a bit. Yeah. You know, and he was gonna, in virtually, he was in every scene, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's going to be, you know, that's going to happen. And they, the critics sort of said, well, you know, it was sort of what I mentioned, you know, when I read the synopsis. There was more than just Douglas Bader in that squadron, you know, blah blah blah. The the Canadians, as you mentioned, you know. I'd like us to go and visit the Hall of Fame early this week, mate, because there is a wonderful supporting cast. And I think you've had your work cut out this week in particular, because there's some very familiar names and faces throughout this movie. And for me, as much as Moore's performance was absolutely superb, there's some brilliant performances from the people that are surrounding him in this. So could you grab your keys? Let's take a walk up the path. We're going to go into the Village Hall of Fame. mate i do apologize for this because the cast list is a lot longer than i thought and almost every single name i think we've come across at one point or another yeah i mean one of the few that isn't in it is richard burton who was going to be originally playing douglas Bader, but um well, that's interesting. to yeah. play uh, alexander oh was that yeah it would have been uh, about that time wouldn't it yeah, yeah. He, he dropped out to go go do that but yeah it's not including the 25 people who are making their second appearances um, right, we're going to skim over those, are we? Yeah, we've got we've got sixty eight people in making their third or more appearance. Um, right, so, I think can we do the inductees, the guys that are making their third? Do, do the and then we'll find a way, yeah. yeah, and we'll find a way yeah. of condensing just probably just the names of you know perhaps yeah. some highlights or something. I don't Absolutely, know. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. So new inductees, mate. <laughs> Deep breath. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, Frank Andrews, nice to remember Gone Good Turn. Frank Atkinson, oh, Mr. Potter, Young and Innocent. Uh, Roland Brand, Goldfinger Lolita. Paul Carpenter, Goldfinger Third Man. Bernard Foreman, uh, Carry On Sergeant, nice to remember. First one you might recognise the name of is mm. Lewis Gilbert. Oh, um, of course. Yep. Admiral Crichton and Educating Rita. Uh, Nigel Green, you recognise his name as well. Absolutely, uh, my favourite. Press mm. File and uh, Legal Gentleman. Frank Hawkins, Private's Progress, Shields in the Night. Barry Letts, 
uh, is in there. I recognise. Oh, Doctor Who. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Cruel Sea and Scott of the Antarctic. Frank Littlewood, Dan Buster's Night to Remember, Roger Maxwell, Maxwell, sorry, Dad's Army, and Mr. Horatio Nibbles. Yeah, he was one of the carrots. Yeah, uh, Julia Nelson, Private's Progress, Revenge of Frankenstein, Ronan O'Casey, uh, Man of the Moment, Trouble in Star, Philip Stinton, Passport to Pimlico, Scott of the Antarctic, Pat Simmons. Carry On Teacher, Night to Remember, Harry Von Engel, Doctor in the House and Night to Remember, Patrick Westwood, Genevieve, Private Progress, Ian Whitaker, Carry On Sergeant, uh, Revenge of Frankenstein, and Kathleen Williams, who was Night to Remember and Violent Playground. Right. So, extending my apologies once again here because <laughs> I'm just looking at this, it goes on forever, this list. Yeah. Oh, well, I honestly did not expect that. I didn't recognise half of those names. No. The ones that stood out, obviously, Nigel Green, Barry Letts, Lewis Gilbert, I think, were the three the three yeah. main ones there that you would have recognised instantly as well. Yeah. And I've just seen there's some frequent flyers in this list, for want of a better phrase as well. I've just mm. noticed a couple of very familiar names. How are we going to do this? Um. Oh, I just noticed there's an uncredited Jess Conrad, the singer, is in this as well. Mm. Um. Could you just give us the names up to about, I don't know, seven or eight, nine performances, something like that, I'm assuming, and then anybody that's over... Have we got anybody over nine appearances? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and pretty much you won't have to read out the movies, mate, I think, because we are going to be here yeah. all day with this. But just so, some names, yeah. yeah, so fourth appearance is Dorothy Allison. Uh, mm-hmm. I recognise her. Uh, yeah. Peter Brace, Peter Burt, and Eddie Byrne, uh, we do know. Now, uh, what did we actually, see Eddie Byrne in recently? He's the Irish fella, isn't he? We said appeared in Star Trek, yeah. actually in Star Wars, wasn't he? He was in The Mummy, is the last thing we watched him that in. That was it. Um, but also done Admiral Crichton and Dunkirk. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so we had him. I mean, going through the, the rest, I mean, we've got mm. uh, Jack Watlin, who um, is a great character, actually, yes. um, as well as Eric Pullman. And Harry, uh, Howard Marion Crawford recognised his face as well. He was Woody, um, wasn't he, I think? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and just for no other reason than the great greatness of the name, I do you know there's somebody called Bunny Seaman. You are kidding me. Talking to Mr. Ratio Bun- Nibbles there, yeah. <laughs> Bunny Seaman. So, what an, ex- what an exciting time for rabbits. Uh, that is. Um, <laughs> so, we see that four appearances for that chap. Why have you not been? Uh, yeah, before? Bunny, Bunny Seaman, carry on, Sergeant, Doctor No, and Night to Remember. Oh, um, wouldn't it be. If they're all carry-on films, that would have been just amazing. Yeah, it was just so, uh, uh, Derek, Derek Holmes as well um, mm-hmm. is in there. But and then coming on to five appearances, you've got Michael Balfour who uh, recognises as well. Yes, um, he, he was in the band in Genevieve. Didn't say a word. I think he was the trumpet player or the trombone player. When Kay Kendall picks up the trumpet and plays with the band, he's he's in there. That was one of the last times we'd have seen Michael Balfour, I think. So, yes, and then, um, again, for some reason, Alicia St. Ledger. That's um, mm. her. But um, so yes, there's fa- there's um, seven people making their um, their fifth appearances. So uh, Michael Balfour, Eddie Boyce, John Howard, Mary Maxfield, Alicia Saint Ledger, Fred Stroud, and and Martin Voss. So, okay, 
But um, of the four people who are making their sixth appearance, uh, Dennis Carnell, Barry Johns, uh, Sidney Taffler is uh, yeah. a name that we particularly recognise, as well as Kenneth Moore, they're both ah, on six. Excellent. So, Sidney Taffler, somewhat out of out of type of the film you know, characters Sidney that he usually plays. Taffler. I always associate him in sort of healing comedies as a East End yeah, sort of wise boy. Spiv. Yeah. yeah, a bit like um, Harry Fowler in later years, yeah. or, or even George Cole, you know, that sort of impression. But yeah, he's the, the guy that designs the legs, isn't he? And, and teaches Vader to walk again, basically. Yeah, and as I said, playing that level of professional, when, as you say, normally he's a bit more of a spiff type, um, <laughs> then yeah. then that was a, a welcome change, and you know, yeah. the, the job well. Uh, with regards to seven appearances, we've got 11 people there. Now, uh, Jack Asher, the cine- cinematographer, is one of yes, those. Yeah, yes. Which is very, very worthwhile to point out. Uh, there's Mike Connor, Dan Creasy, Richard Duke, Mabel Efferington, we recognise quite a lot in things. Yes. Uh, same as Harry Locke. Harry Locke, yes. That's another yeah. familiar name, yeah. So, uh, Fred Nicholas, uh, Anthony N- Nelson Keyes, the, the producer. Mm-hmm. Um, got him as well. Jeff Silk is a is a name that is uh, obviously appearing quite frequently. Uh, Robert Vossler and uh, Russell Waters. Okay. Uh, so Russell Waters sounds like it's some kind of euphemism as well. But there you go. Um, but uh, yeah, we've got from there onwards we've got six people making hair uh, eight. Uh, amongst those is uh, Basil Dignam um, and Michael Ripper. Yes, that, that was a surprise to see Michael Ripper. Yes. Basil Dignam, the name I recognise, he came up at the, in the cast list at the beginning. Where do we know him from, mate? Can you give us a couple of the movies that we'd have seen? Oh, Ten Million Templars, Carry On, Sergeant, Heavens Above, Private's Progress, Quatermass, Room at the Top and Sapphire. We, we last discussed him because his brother was actually in a film that we were, and, <laughs> and he was catching up with him. Oh, right, OK, there's another Dignam, um, OK. Yeah, two people making their ninth appearances, Ronald Adam and, and Joe Phelps. Um, Ronald Adam, yep, typical performance from Ronald Adam, normally plays like chiefs of police or some sort of like high-ranking military. Yeah. yeah. Or even MPs, used to do a lot of MPs. Yes. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, one person making their 10th appearance, which is Jack May. Now, that one um, sneaks in because that isn't who I was expecting there, Jack May. Yeah, was the caddy. No, in you're, yeah. yeah, you're probably thinking one of the two people that's making their 11th appearances. Okay. Which is um, Aidan Harrington. And Sam Kidd, <laughs> both on 11. There's another one above that, though, isn't there? I've, I've just noticed. Uh, it. <laughs> there's two more above that, actually. There's one person making their 12th appearance, which is Ernest Blime. That um, one I missed, and, then. yeah. And, and then 15. 15 appearances. Is this the, the most? It is, this, this is the most. This is uh, Fred Griffith. So is Fred Griffith number one now? Fred Griffith says actually one behind uh, the great Victor Harrington. Um, okay. We've gone 16, who is the top of the tree for, for men and women with regards to appearances. But obviously, Aidan, who uh, we hope is a ham- family member, is catching up somewhat with 11. Uh, but we yeah, have, Gref- yeah, we haven't actually confirmed these Harringtons are related, have we? We're just No, because there's a there's not there's Victoria as well, yeah. we mentioned before, who yeah. uh, she herself has had four appearances. Uh, and you know we're assuming age-wise she must be um, the, the daughter of one of them. Um, Possibly, and it, yeah. Uh, mm. Could it be that she's the daughter of Aidan, but he's, he's named her 
partially after his brother Victor. <laughs> Who knows? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, we we know what Victor Harrington looks like, but we don't know what Aidan does. But yeah, um, yeah, the elusive, yeah. the elusive one yeah. of the Harringtons. Yeah. So, I, so yeah, still quite a quite a long cast list there. I um, can only apologise. I, I keep doing this to you, and it's not intentional. I want to point out somebody you haven't mentioned because obviously I don't think he's made three appearances yet. There's a, a German officer pulls up in the staff car at the prisoner of war camp, and his name's Richard Marner. I recognised right, yeah. him instantly. Richard Marner was was the German officer that played opposite the other German played by Sam Kelly. And I'm just looking through his sort of IMDb CV at the moment. He was Russian by birth, Richard Marner. But if you look through his CV, similar to like Fred Wood or whatever, always played cabbies or whatever. Richard Marner, he was in the African Queen in 51, you know. Russian sentry, prison guard, toasting Russian officer, Barkov, Hans Brecht, Sven, German officer in staff car, German officer, Karl, German soldier, uncredited, German prisoner. He made a killing basically, on playing Germans and Russians. He was in a couple of bomb movies as a Russian. Uh, he was in Secret Army. Of course he was in Secret Army, you know. <laughs> and I recognised him instantly because he hadn't changed between 1950-whatever-this-movie was made, 56, and, and 30 years later in Hello, Hello. He looked exactly the same. Yeah, and there was I saw a, a list uh, a few weeks ago of people like that that were... You know, had left their home country, and particularly this was about people who had fled the Nazis, but then ended yeah. up having a career playing Nazis archetypally. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it wasn't uncommon um, for certain people to, as you say, make a career out of playing the the baddies, as it were. Exactly, um, and he did. He made a complete living out of it. You know, from the fifties right through till his death in two thousand and four. There's another one I wanted to mention. You mentioned him earlier, Barry Letts, who instantly, you know, I can see, you know, your your face lit up as soon as you read that name out. For Doctor Who fans, he's a very famous name, isn't he? Wasn't he producer during the Pertwee era? I believe it was around that time, yeah. Yeah, the, the end of the Pertwee, beginning of the Baker, round about that sort of time, wasn't it? You know, very funny. He always appears in, like, the documentaries on the DVDs doing the behind-the-scenes stuff on any Doctor Who thing. So, but we've seen him three times now, you say. He's been... Inducted Barry Letts. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else you want to mention, mate? Anybody else there that sort of stands out in this cast list? This cast list is incredible. I didn't think there was that many people in this movie, to be honest. No, I mean, the, the only one I think I've missed uh, bringing any attention to is just that um, uh, in the, the second appearances, there was, um, which I brushed over and mentioned the name, but we didn't dwell on, was mm. Michael Goff. Ah, he was the instructor at the beginning, wasn't he? Yeah. Recognised the voice before yeah. I saw his face. Yeah. Same with me, same with me, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you who else is in this. Uh, Stringer Davis is uncredited. Stringer Davis is probably more famous as Margaret Rutherford's husband, as well as being a, an actor in his own right. Anton Diffring was the German guard that came in, found Kenneth Moore hiding in the barn. Yes. Oh, we saw in The Man Who Could Cheat Death recently, so that must be... Um, he's somewhere on the list, yeah. He's, somewhere he's, there. I think he's one of the ones that I, that I skipped over because of, you know, yeah. Um, he's had more than he's had more than two appearances as Anton. So, and then yeah. there's a guy credited as man listening to radio, and it's Trevor Bannister, uncredited. Trevor Bannister was Mr. Lucas in Are You Being Served, or he'd go on to be Mr. Lucas in Are You Being Served. So he must have been like a young lad or something. I'm not too sure. So I didn't recognise him. Again, apologies, mate. The, a cast list of thousands, and and you have done sterling work as always. Thank you, brilliant. Glad to play a part. 
We're going to have to find a way of, of a, making this a little bit easier for you and sort of trimming it down a little bit because it's just become, well, it became a monster months ago, didn't it? And it's, it's, it's not getting out of control because you've got such a firm handle on this, but I honestly didn't anticipate, you know, 16 appearances by one particular actor that nobody would ever heard of, you know? No, and I think that it's, it's, it's got its own life to it. And I think that it, it's just emphasising the point every time, as we always say, these actors... It's not the Richard Burtons uh, and etc. That, that kept British cinema going. It was these people who were the the stalwart unknowns mm-hmm. who um, you know would appear in a film and then go back to their, their terraced house rather than go back to some uh, megastars mansion. <laughs> yeah, so, fair yes. play to them. fair play to them. I mean, we're, we're getting to know we're getting to know these people quite intimately, almost. You know, and we're looking out for some of them. And you know, we we wouldn't have necessarily paid that much attention to Sidney Taffler. We just knew who he was, you know, a couple of years ago. But yeah. now it's, like, it's, it's a pleasure to see him on the screen because, oh, yeah, that's Sidney Taffler. We're used to him from this or from that. Muriel Pavlov, we've seen, who, who's um, Bader's wife. I'm yes. just looking now to find out what we, where do we... This is recent, isn't it, Muriel Pavlov? No, she's been in Dutch of the House. That's the only thing we've seen her in. Is that the only one? Okay, so she mm. was the romantic lead in that. I thought we'd seen her in something else. Yeah, Reach for the Sky, Doctor in the House. She's in Doctor at Large as well, which we haven't come to as yet. Okay, again, thank you so much for doing, mate. That's incredible work. Thank you. This movie, is is it your typical war film? Is it, I think it adds a little bit more to a typical war film because you get your, your marvellous battle scenes and your dogfights and, and, and that side of the story. But the focus is the human interesting, isn't it, throughout this movie? Yeah, it's, it's the hero building. Uh, and for, for all that, there was some uh, commentary about concentrating on one person. As you say, it's, it's mm. that's what happens when you've got a, a biopic. It's... it's meant to be about one person as a biography you know the yes the hero building was uh, a, a romanticization of, of the person and certainly it, it, the jingoism and the way that it actually went heavy on it and there was some point with because there's a bit of there's a bit of narration or, or voiceover with, yeah with it and you know i'm not sure how much that was you know that i felt was where it added to the cloyness of you know, saying that his squadron began to see him as a Superman, um, and they would, you know, <laughs> yes. follow him in, follow him to a gates of, of hell, basically, and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, wasn't true. He was, he was wildly reviled by his own, own men, and, and the theory is that he was shot down by one of his own people because they were oh. so sick of him being an arsehole. Um, in, in actual fact, that's, that's been looked into properly to try and work out the circumstances and, and the, the, the technical details. But yes, there's a, there's a heavy dose on this where they've tried to make a, a better portrayal of him. I mean, you know, you can see why they had to wait until after rationing had finished to do this because the amount of sugar coating they've done. But it's, yeah. um, it, the, the fact of the matter is, it is a, a clear example and maybe an extreme example, but it's a clear example of this post-war film where they're portraying the heroism and uh, fight that there was and the, the dashing airmen particularly. I mean, I know mm. there's been a lot of comment uh, over the years about the Battle of Britain pilots getting all the attention they did and being held, you know, held up as being the saviours of the entire nation when there was, mm. you know, lots of people playing their part and there was lots of battles that went on, and you know, even even air-wise. But this is very much the, your archetypal and one of the best examples of this post-war film where they are pushing 
that patriotism and the role that was played by people being brave, going out there and, and fighting. And, you you know, throughout this story, there's constant references to, to who's been lost, characters that have come in and then later they've just been told that they their plane's gone down. Um, so there is that element of loss of, of the wider context, even though it does concentrate on one person. And I think this film... Yes, for all its, its, its jingoism and, and overboard patriotism and sugarcoating. The fact of the matter is it starts off from a, a very action based situation straight yep. away in with him. And for all the fact that it's over two hours long, there aren't any points in it where the interest drops. They're keeping story in there. They're packing it in. With regards to even when, you know, obviously he's in the hospital, there's, there's high drama about whether he's going to die or not with the, the sessions of him learning how to walk. There's, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's drama in that. It's all the way through relentless. There's not any, any dips, um, like you would sometimes get in action films where there's action, then a dip, then action, then a dip. This yeah. is, it's, it's all the way through, which is consistent and packs it in tightly within the, the two and a quarter hours or whatever it is. Yeah, that surprised me, realising it was over two hours long. It didn't seem like two hours long. You know, it's one of those great examples of the film that you totally get absorbed in and the running time is, is secondary, you know. And for me, I think personally, the scenes in the hospital where it's the life or death, is he going to survive? And then the following scenes of him learning to walk and the struggles that he has there were probably the best scenes in the movie rather than the action scenes and the dogfights and all, and all the actual air fights, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think the hospital scenes were possibly the better ones for me, watching it as a pretty much as a first-time watch. Just going back slightly to what you were saying about Vader himself as, as a being quite unlikable in real life, Vader didn't see the movie, apparently, for about 11 years when he watched it for the first time on TV because he'd fallen out with Paul Brickhill, who'd written the book that this was based on. And Paul Brickhill, I know, because he wrote The Dam Busters, the book that The Dam Busters was based on. I read that quite a few times now. Yeah, and he'd also been, he was meant to be on set and actually doubling yeah. in for some long shots for, for Kenneth Moore. But because yeah. him and Lewis Gilbert, Lewis Gilbert apparently was, was somebody um, who, you know, made great efforts to try and, and be professional on film. Mm. And he fell out. He just couldn't work with Douglas Bader because he was, he was so difficult as a person and they ended up he wasn't in the film at all, and that's, you know, as you say, that's why he didn't watch it until yeah. years later, because he'd had this fallout. Yeah, he refused to attend the premiere because of, you know, the, the conflict between the, the whole production team, basically. And when he watched it, apparently, for the first time on TV many years later, um, I'll, I'll read this out. It says, Bader recognised that the producer had deleted all the habits he displayed when on operations, particularly his prolific use of bad language. Bader once said, they still think I'm the dashing chap that Kenneth Moore was. So that ties in with what you were saying about him being unlikable, even, you know, when on operations and, and, you know, doing the job he was paid to do. I remember him appearing on This Is Your Life. I think that was the first time I'd ever come across him. I think I'd seen this This Is Your Life episode before I watched that first 20 minutes of the movie all those years ago. I don't remember much about it, but I just remember it being a big thing. And my, my, my father was like, oh, that's Douglas Bader. He's in Rich of the Sky, blah, blah, blah. It's an incredible story, though. I mean, you know, whether he was likable or not. A, a lot of the time, particularly around this time as well, mate, you're going to get a bit of sugar coating. You're going to get it sweet. Now, people don't want to see somebody a nasty bastard really do they you know they want they want that hero that's the public's perception of douglas bader was he was a hero that overcame the odds and virtually won the war single-handed and and that's what this movie portrays yeah 
Yeah, I mean, these days they might, you know, they might, if they were doing it, show him more as an anti-hero uh, mm. who was uh, an arsehole, but, you know, got the job done as, as such. And, yeah. And, you know, as you say, his, his role in the actual war and his, he actually is, mid, you know, his push for military tactics, which were, were flawed, and his attempt to get rid of some of the, the people who were actually leading things that were getting it right, um, because of his own arrogance, he felt that he was, he was right and they were wrong. That all put aside, you, you're absolutely right with what you said, that the crux of this is the, and, and the heroism to him, if there is heroism to him, is that tenacity to survive such an accident. And, you know, it's an accident that wasn't during the, it's why I, I for some reason, always thought that he, it was something that happened during duty while, mm. you know, while yeah. fighting the, the Bosch. Well, I did. Yeah. It wasn't, it was something where he's just, he's been an asshole and showing off, um, before yeah. the war. But yeah. the, the, you're absolutely right that, that tenacity, uh, and the inspiration from the man is from the fight to come back from death and, you know, walk and then end up being able to get back in the plane as well as do everything else that he did, um, golf and, and etc. Yeah. Um, his military record wasn't that great and, and certainly his, um, actual conduct as an airman wasn't something to be uh, really hero worshipped but certainly the tenacity to actually come back from that is something that should be recognised and they've had to dress it up around a, a story of, of daring do mm. um, I think. you get a sort of brief perception of how disruptive he was but they they tend to coat it in, in a comical way you know what i mean you know the sort of the scenes where he's on the motorbike with the, the three lads on the back and they you know they <laughs> they hobble the policeman's bicycle and there's all this disruption you know the, the bit on parade at the beginning where his, his hat has been yeah he was just a disruptive arrogant character because whatever he undertook he appeared to excel because you know at one point they mentioned was he going to play cricket for england at one point and he was oh, an yeah, expert was, rugby player and, yeah, and you know everything yeah. and, and people resented him because he was whatever he turned his hand to he was bloody good at but i think what they've done is that arrogance has been transposed to the screen on a more comic level oh yeah yeah it's seen mm. as being more a charming force mm. of will and carrying people along with him because he's so um robust as a person yeah um, and and also the anti-authoritarianism is is seen as being to a positive end and that you know he's he's fighting to try and get the right things for his for his men um, and going up against authority and all, all this kind of stuff when the reality was self-serving almost all the way through. Um, and certainly treating, you know, the, the whole war thing and treating death and, it, you know, I think it's actually in the film where he refers to going on a, a, another set of, of sorties, or, you know, in, in the year as, as another season. Um, and his wife comments that, that, you know, he's treating it like it's a, it's a cricket match. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it, it, yes, it, admittedly, people had to take a desensitized view a lot of the time of the imminent death that they were facing. But yeah, it seems like he did basically uh, have a certain amount of, of arrogance about him that was not really a positive trait, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting the way he's portrayed. But I was just looking to see if this had won any awards because obviously you said it wasn't as successful in America as you know Rank had hoped it was going to be. It actually won BAFTA for Best Picture in '56. Well, it was the best, biggest gross earning 
British film of, of the year. And it was up against some tough competition then, mate, because I was yeah. just looking at what else was nominated for Best Picture of the BAFTAs, right? Battle of the River Plate, war movie. You were saying about war movies being popular this, you know, at this particular period in time, which is the, the Powell and Pressburger version of that. Man Who Never Was, which we've reviewed, a war film, in, in essence. A Town Like Alice, again, great movie, up against all of these. And Yield to the Night, you know, the one we did with Diana Dawes. Yeah, so, yeah. An incredible bit of competition that it was up against. I, I want to mention as well the lady that played the nurse, Dorothy Allison, Nurse Brace. Wasn't she previously um, the, the wife in um, Gideon's The Long Arm? Yeah. Oh, Long, long Arm. arm. Too, yeah. yeah, The Long Arm. And she was also in Georgie Girl. And she was in Amazing Mr. Blunden as well, apparently. There we go. So we've seen her a few times. I thought she was going to be, you know, the the typical story that, you know, injured man falls in love with nurse that saved his life sort of thing. Yes. But then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hang on a minute, that's not Muriel Pavlov. And we haven't really met Muriel Pavlov apart from, well, we hadn't at this point because he doesn't meet Muriel Pavlov until he, he goes out to the tea shop, doesn't he? The coffee shop or wherever yeah. it is, the, the, the restaurant. And, and it was quite deceiving, actually, because I'm thinking, where's this going? I thought there was going to be some big romance between the pair of them. But I thought she gave as good a performance as anybody in this movie. And she's sort of like fifth or sixth billing, you know, and she, she should have been up there uh, at the top because I think she is central to the story because of the way she interacts with him throughout his recovery you know and you think there's going to be a little spark there somewhere but there's not you know and it's almost she was expecting their relationship to go a little bit further as well because you can tell she's probably pretty much in love with him at this point yeah and i mean it's a trope and and you know it's a cliche for the fact that it cliche won't be a cliche if it wasn't true and unfortunately mm. you know, there, mm. there are a lot of situations where nurses and patients particularly um soldiers and airmen etc um do create that bond due to the the intensity of their interactions and end up that's what happens but yeah. i think you're right that there's there are some great performances throughout this entire film i mean kenneth moore although he's, he's playing a caricature you know the scenes that we've mentioned before where it's that he's you know dying in the hospital bed or he's, he's learning how to walk again yeah. sure you know dramatic chops but mm. A lot of the lead airmen and the people who were who are on screen more prominently are the ones that are playing more caricature type roles. But it's these people, like you said, in the background that are playing the you know the nurses um, and the the orderlies and etc. that are putting in the subtle dramatic performances that are actually really good. Um, yeah. But they're all, you know unfortunately overshadowed by the the, the presence that is Mr. Moore. Yeah. 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 You saying about supporting characters and being sort of overshadowed. There's one scene that made me laugh pretty much out loud where the three of them are in the car and they're on the way to the tea shop and they get out of the car and they're walking across the grass to go and sit at the table. And Nigel Green's got the broken arm sticking out at a really jaunty angle. And the other airman has got, has he got a cast on one leg? And then Kenneth Moore turns up with his two. Yeah two tin legs or whatever and the observers are like oh that poor man that poor man like there's somebody else walks across the screen that's even yeah. worse off you know <laughs> there are there are elements of of light-heartedness to this because you couldn't have this being drama all the way through or doom and gloom all the way through and you couldn't have it being this great gung-ho bravado thing as well you know you do need an element of lightness and, and it's just about right the amount of it is just about right in this movie you know it, it doesn't take the focus off of the real story and 
I think it just adds to the fact that we were saying it's, it's over two hours long and it doesn't feel like two hours because you've just got something keeping your interest all the way through this movie. There's no wasted time throughout the running time of this film at all. No, and, and it does balance well with those elements where there's the, not completely, but as far as some comic relief in there to, to balance out. Certainly when you compare it to then the action scenes, and to be perfectly honest, the action scenes are, are, are very small in the entire thing. Yeah. There's not a lot of time spent actually on uh, being in the air, you know, firing at German planes. And really that only, you only get any footage of that as far as, the film goes when it comes to him being shot down in France and therefore leading to his uh, incarceration in prisoner of war camps. Yeah. You know, the, his other sorties, as they're called, when they go, you know, go fighting uh, Battle of Britain, etc. You see him running towards planes and you might see a brief bit of them in the cab, but there's very little time spent on them actually fighting. It's all the stuff around the fighting, which is, is where the focus is. And some of that is this element where they're at, no, they're, they're, they are showing them to be basically a, a bunch of lads having a laugh or him being uh, anti-authoritarian but in a way in which people can find endearing because of, of how what he's pushing for isn't for himself or it's just the tenacity of, of you know this getting you know pushing to get back in a plane even when he's learning how to play golf you know you've got the, the pratfall almost of him you know swinging the club and falling over and doing it again and again Mm. Um, to create a bit of a bit of tension uh, release. Yeah, I mean, th- there was one point that I thought they were going to focus on more because um, they, they focused on more almost entirely through the film. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I said that, I knew you were going to bloody comment. Um, <laughs> people, when they you know they hear the story of Douglas Bader about seeing this movie. One of the things that's always mentioned is he was it was famous that when he was imprisoned in whatever prisoner of war camp it was, they, they took away his legs to stop him escaping because he escaped so many times. And I thought there'd be a real sort of like second half of the movie would be like the prisoner of war years. But it's not a great part of the narrative, is it? It's probably only about 10, 15 minutes, if that. Whereas in a couple of concentration camps or a couple of prisoner of war camps, and it ends up being liberated from Colditz. Oh, yeah. But that's one of the famous sort of stories that people say, oh, Douglas Bailey, yeah, he used to escape all the time. The Germans took his legs away. And that isn't really sort of focused on here. And I think it's more interesting that there, there was, and it was only mentioned almost as a side thing, that the, there was an arrangement made with the Germans to be allowed to airdrop some new legs in for him. Yes. Yeah, because that Which, was the bit. Because he, he he lost one of the legs getting out bailing out of the plane, didn't he? It was like yeah, trapped. Yeah. But then you see him with the two legs a little bit later on. So that's what happened, was it? He actually had some legs flown over. Amazing. <laughs> a couple of bits of trivia before we start winding this down. The composer was a guy called John Addison. Was actually Douglas Bader's brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is impressive. Um, Kenneth Moore, Douglas Bader were both born and died the same year born 1914 and died in 82, the pair of them. And first choice for the role that Muriel Pavlov took was Dinah Sheridan, who co-starred alongside Kenneth Moore in Genevieve. But she just got married and had promised her husband that she would give up acting, so she couldn't actually take up the role. 
Yeah, yeah, and you know, which is a, a shame because obviously I think she did come back to acting. Uh, uh, Later life, she did a lot of TV life, stuff, didn't she? But yeah, it was obviously a, a loss for that to be imposed yeah. on. But certainly the you know as far as the choices of who they picked, I don't think there's anybody. Uh, you know, I would say that they miscast. No, no, um, no, no. And there was nobody who wasn't up to the the role that they were being asked to portray, even if they were being asked to play sort of more of a two dimensional. Hmm. person because they were the focus yeah um, and i do think that putting kenneth moran was was it was essential to have somebody like him who was likable in order to to get this film to actually work even with kenneth moore portraying him you still still work out who wasn't really a, <laughs> a, a, a nice bloke but um but certainly that kenneth moore does enough to to turn it around that you yeah can, uh, you can put with him so but um uh, yeah it's um Good choice, really. Yeah, I think it's possibly the role that most people associate with Kenneth Moore. I think, you know, he'd be, you know, it's the one that he's most famous for. And you mentioned Richard Burton turned it down because he was doing Alexander the Great. I just read here that Laurence Olivier may have possibly have been second choice, but on reflection, Lewis Gilbert sort of said he wouldn't have been right for the role. Kenneth Moore was perfect the role so yeah cannot fault the cast cannot fault the whole film actually mate as a first time watch i absolutely loved it again i thought i'd seen it but do you know what yeah top of the tree mate five star rating for me on this one i think it's a film that that needs to be uh recognized as an essential part of british cinema yeah and you know okay there'll be some people who who just don't do black and white war films and uh, although this is is more human interest than it is war yeah I think that, you know, this is something that people should consider making a point of seeing once in their, their life just because of its iconic status. And, and it, it does set the mold for a number of other films, not just around the Second World War, but as I said before, having an impact upon things like, you know, Star Wars and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So that's Reach for the Sky, which was my choice this week. Going to take a short break because, Stephen, it'll be your choice next. Back after this. So that was Reach for the Sky. Stephen, your choice for when we return, just you and I together. I nearly said just the two of us once again there. Um, I look forward to this part of the show because I know that you've got a list of 100-plus movies that you want to talk about. And you could go absolutely anywhere on that list. So where exactly are we going, mate? What's up next? Well, we're, we're moving forward in time into the 80s. Uh, which, you know, just to be uh, a bit different, and this yep. is a comedy drama. thought we'd try and, and move away from where we've just had um, a, a film that's focused on this this national hero, and, mm-hmm. and I thought it might be a, a better idea for us to go with a, a local hero. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Another movie that's celebrating an anniversary, isn't it? 40 years old. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yes. 
you know where I thought you were going to go? No, I won't say because I'm saving it for possibly my so, next one. Yeah, so um, next one. I've seen it so once yes. when it first came out. I think I've only seen it once as well. Is so. Peter Capaldi in this? He is, yes, along Very with Fulton, young, Mac- Fulton Mackay, uh, Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster, yeah. Uh, Fulton Mackay, Dennis Larson, uh, yeah, Peter Capaldi, um, Alex Norton, amongst others. Yeah, so yes, local hero from 1983, which is uh, Bill Forsyth, which we obviously covered before. It's it's unofficially part, you know, kind of part of a, a trilogy uh, along with uh, Gregory's Girl. So. Wow. Okay. One we would have come to at some point, and you've brought it to the table now. Excellent. As I say, 19... the stars aligned, you see, because of the the, <laughs> the, the, the 40th anniversary and then the, the hero element. I just couldn't resist. Oh, you know what I'm like? We don't just throw this together. I throw this together. You actually put a bit of thought into it. So. <laughs> I don't know why I haven't gone back to this, because it's a bloody great movie from what I remember, and it is... Yeah widely regarded as one of the great British movies of all time. It's Is it Burt Lancaster's last film? I think it might. Oh no, Thrilled to Dreams would have been his last, wouldn't it? So it's round about that sort of time. Oh well, yeah, it's tail end. Definitely tail end. Yeah. This, um... Oh, this is great. You've got John Gordon Sinclair makes an appearance. Jenny Seagrove. Yeah, there's some great names in here. Possibly not going to trouble you too much in the Hall of Fame this time round, hopefully. But that's just an accident. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to take a little bit of a breather. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> we'll find so- somebody's going to be in there. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, I'm not going to hazard a guess, but I'm just wondering if a Harrington pops up somewhere along the line. We'll have to see. Okay, and a great soundtrack. Is it Martin Offler soundtrack on this? Tis, well? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay, let's wind this up now. That was Reach for the Sky. We've got Local Hero coming up next time Stephen and I are together. Looking forward to that. Stephen, thank you so much, as always, for being there today, sir. No, my pleasure. See you very soon, mate. Take care. Take care. It's the end, boys. We've done our duty. We can go now. Absolute shah. A positive shah. Good luck. Thank you.
British end-up, sir. I'm sick of pains. Stop engines. Stop engines. Ha ha ha!